welcome to the Heavy Mindset Show, episode number nine. Today's episode is entitled New to Code, and with me, I have William Kennedy. So William is a self-taught software developer working in Ruby on Rails, and I thought it'd be nice to have him on the show today to give us some insights into how to go about uh, learning software development and to actually land a job. So thanks for joining us today, today William, and can you give us an introduction into what you're at? Uh-huh. Yeah, thanks, Dennis. Um, I, I didn't think I'd need an introduction, to be honest, but anyway. Uh, yeah, so was it, um, I'm just um, a software developer. Uh, I work for an Irish company here you know, in Dublin. And uh, I suppose how, was it, how we met is we met through work, but um, I'm here to talk about mostly uh, how I became a software developer without going to college. I didn't go down to traditional route. And so originally I started a blog called Moot Code. Back in 2013, um, which was with the aim of helping me demonstrate my knowledge, and uh, from there was it, that was 2013. In 2015, then or about a year and a half later, I managed to get a job. So that that is my basic story, and from there, then I've just been slowly trying to get better at software development. Okay, so why did you decide into software development, and when did you make that choice? Uh, I well, it was the accumulation of things. I lived in Canada, and when I was when I was twenty one, I was not to say when I was young, but I'm twenty eight. I'm not that old. Uh, so when I was twenty one or twenty two, I lived in Canada for a year, and at the time I was working in a, in a cell phone shop for one of the big networks, and uh, was everyone was showing me asking what you could do. What like, I met a businessman who. You know, was making a lot of money from apps, and it's a very simple thing. It was a uh, there was a celebrity, an Indian celebrity, and it was basically this Indian celebrity would sell private content to yeah, and you subscribe to five dollars a month. And I was like, oh, you're making money from that. He goes, oh yeah. And then things like that then started triggering me, and then I started seeing like uh, the impact that the iPhone was having. Everyone was using iPhone, and I was never really kind of a person that liked consuming new games or. You know, I would for a while, but then I was like, I don't really want to make stuff. So the job I was doing is just failed. And uh, I just had in my head I wanted to create stuff, but I kind of put it on the back burner. And so that was kind of the beginning of it. And then I came back to Ireland. I got the same job in Ireland. And I worked twice as many hours and got half the money. So typical Ireland. And uh, I was just still thinking, like, oh, I want to change my career. I, you know, I... Because I went to college, I did like uh, an administration course of public administration, which is about management government and things like that. And I, I was thinking of moving into that area, but I didn't really want it. And it wasn't really, uh, I didn't really want to work for politicians. And uh, so I decided I'm going to try and teach myself software development. College wasn't an option because I simply didn't want to go back to college. And, you know, I figured... I could learn from books, I could learn from YouTube, I could learn from these new ways, and I wouldn't have to spend all this money and time and commitment when I could still have a job and do it on the side. And so in November 2013, I set a goal, a five-year goal, to become a software developer within five years. And luckily I managed to achieve within, within two. So it was just very fortunate um, that I got the first job, and then slowly from there, I've just been studying, I still continue to study in the evening. 
But you touched on, you touched on that. You went to college to study public administration, and you dropped out in third year. If you just talk this through, how did that yeah. work out for you? Like, did you feel any pressure? Or, I don't know. What happened there? Yeah, so uh, I'm um, sorry, I'm 20 at that point. And in hindsight, and even at the time, I said, like, at the time, the decision was if I stayed and did the degree, uh, it would have, I felt it would have closed doors for me. A lot of people think the piece of paper is going to open doors for me, but I felt the culture that surrounded the degree, you know, that you have a degree to have this job, so you must have a degree to get this job. So people are very, there's a culture surrounding them. And I felt if I got a degree, I would be embedded in that culture in a way. I would say, well, I have a degree, so I must be smart for you. I didn't want that for myself. And there was, um, I had a belief that there's, there's, there's a market. And there is a market, there's demand and supply. And I believe at the time that if I became really good at something, that I would have, I would do well. I would do okay, and I and I didn't feel like I didn't feel that when I went to learn software development. I just was looking at all the different computer courses. You know, I said they're they're being they're being taught by people who never actually worked in the industry. They never really worked. They, they, they just worked in the college. Like we don't have that broad experience, and I lots of people have taught themselves code. And in the first place, I'm not by no means a pioneer. I just thought there's no reason I can do it myself. And so I just thought college wasn't, you know, at least the course I was doing it, it did offer value to my life, but that was, mm. but I don't think it was, don't think it was a good idea to pursue it in the end. And so I had to deal with, like, when I told my parents I wasn't going to go back to college, I had to deal with all that pressure. That was most of the pressure was my family. Was putting doubts me, but I, I kind of knew that I could figure things out. So how, were you, how, how were you reading at the time that you had these kind of firm beliefs, or where do you think that came from? Uh, I think the, the kind of belief in the market came from our understanding of the market. Is uh, it's funny in secondary school I did economics, but I also my dad is a farmer, and that's how he makes a living. You know he. He's not going to bring in money if no one wants to buy food. And, you know, when there's demand for, when there's high demand for meat, he's doing better. When there's lower demand, he's not doing so well. So, I suppose growing up in a household like that, we just intrinsically just figure it out. And then, like, when I was younger, you know, I got my first job when I was 13. And, uh, you know, I think those kind of experience, when you get a job young, when you're young, and even though you don't appreciate it at the time, it does make an impact on you and you realize, well, hang on, if I do something for somebody, they pay me, or if I help someone else, they earn money. And so I was slowly understanding that, well, if you do things, you get money back. And so before I went to college, I'd already worked like four or five jobs. And so I didn't really feel college going to get me a new job because I'd already done four or five jobs, right? So um, I think that's where and it came from, and then I started reading books, like different books. Um, I just, because I got a Kindle, like in 2011, 2011, 2012, I just started buying a load of self-help books. So books like, uh, I started off, very simple books, 
uh, those seven habits of highly effective people, and uh, different books like that. And then most of just taking blog posts, just random blog posts of people who start businesses. And, uh, you know, I just started seeing my perspective start to shift. There is a wider, there's a wider thing going on. You don't need to get a specific degree to do a specific job. You know, you can actually be good at multiple things. You know, I don't just know how to code. I can do, I can write, I can, you know, I can clean, I can do whatever. I, I, I can do a course of things. How do you find well. the balance there between, like, you're talking being, being a generalist there, how do you find the balance, like, putting to a specialization where you can excel in? I think, like, uh, it's a good question, actually. It's, um, yeah, you, have to, you have to, like, limit what you're going to do, because I suppose the temptation when you're younger is, uh, and it's something I wish I knew in hindsight, is that it's good to, it's good to, like, um, niche down and that's the get good at one thing and naturally if you do if you kind of get good at one thing but you're going to quickly get good at another thing because skills are transferable so um if you one skill that i think really helped me is i i learned how to develop a routine and so i have a, i've lived like a pretty routine person and it's something i had to build myself so in my early 20s and because a lot of successful people that I read about had they just had these routines and they don't they just go in every day, they do their bit, and then they go back and they do it again, they do it again. And all of a sudden after some time everything compounds and they start getting these results. And um, and so I knew early on I had to build a routine. Or oh, when did you start building a routine? Yeah, like so when it comes to like specialization, you know, I started building routines and I do skills and I knew these new skills with so when it comes to spec, I actually trailed off a bit. When it comes to like specialization versus generalization, uh, I think it's better to be a specialist. I think like a generalist. So have the skills of a of a specialist. So be really good at one thing, but think be able to think in a broad perspective about different aspects. So a lot of programmers, they they are good programmers, but they don't understand the function they have to the business. So when they're learning, they're, they're, they believe the service they offer, the, the code they write, or how they've made some web app faster. But the reality is the customers probably don't care, as the code is just a small part of what's happening. There's a whole bunch of value from the sales people, the marketing people, and you know, the content people, even the customers themselves. So I think a good... So you can be good at coding and good at programming, but it's better to be to think like a generalist to be able to understand the different aspects of everyone else from the team. And you think you picked that up from having a job in sales and from doing a different degree and reading different books? Uh, I'd say sales probably helps a lot because um, when you work in sales, you, you know, the least sales certain I got in Canada was very good. It taught me like... Um, Taught me that there's this emotional component to people, and uh, it was funny. I used to be the kind of most honest salesperson because I, because in Canada they have a they have a called an oligopoly. So there's, there's three tele, there's three telecom companies. They all charge the same prices, but they make out that they're competing against each other. And they, they Canada has one of the highest 
rate of of uh, bills, cell phone bills in the world. So an average bill in Canada would be like would be a hundred, hundred and twenty dollars. But over here in Europe, you know, we're we're paying like twenty euros for for unlimited data. Where they they wouldn't have unlimited data. They would have nothing uh, like that. And so when the Canadians would come to me and they tell me like, uh, oh, I want to switch my plan, and I tell them what plan is on offer, and they say, is that a good deal? And I say, well, it's not really, but it's the best you can get. And they would, you know, they actually really appreciated that. And so I learned that because people kind of like that. Uh, you know, I say it in kind of a humorous way. And people kind of like that. And uh, honestly, that shows the fact that they could trust me. And then I ended up getting more sales. And that understanding that side of people, which is people, people have an emotional attachment to things. And so understanding that really helps um, would help any programmer. Because programmers like to be, you know, a lot of them like to be black and white and um, black and white and they believe that they're kind of the biggest part of the business. And usually they are. They're usually the most expensive part as well in some cases. So, um, but it's good for most programmers to understand that there is a human element outside of them and, you know, and they're not major player a lot of the time. So, how did your journey begin in programming? What was your first step? What did it look, what did it look like? Uh, yeah, so I just started, uh, it was actually, it was a site back in uh, 2011, 2012. I'm not sure if it's there anymore, uh, Code Academy. And uh, there was just basic HTML and CSS. But after I went to, after I went to that, I started setting up WordPress blogs. And then, you know, what WordPress was, but I think that I mostly set them up for fun. I came up with an idea and I just set up a new website. And uh, it's fun to learn all about how to set up a WordPress blog. It's very easy to set up a WordPress blog. But pretty soon you're like, well, I would like the plugin, I'd like a PHP plugin to do this, a WordPress plugin to do this, and it's not doing that. How do I make it do that? And then you realize that when people are actually programming this, they're like, you can do it, please. And I was like, well, I'd rather be able to do that. So it's kind of a frustration. I had, and then I started, uh, then I started looking into it, and uh, yeah, eventually I just said, well, it looks like this is actually a pretty good kind of career to have, it's intellectually stimulating, it's, uh, you know, uh, it's um, well established, uh, there's loads of exciting things happening in it, so I just, uh, in November 2013, I set my own blog, and I started buying, originally I started trying to learn Java, which is a lower-level language, and, uh, and it's the most popular language in the world still, I think. And so I started learning that because my idea was to make Android apps. And so, so I just started reading books, um, and then uh, you know, running, writing little programs, and then eventually I discovered Ruby, and then um, I wrote a blog post that did quite well on Reddit, and someone reached out to me and there's a course called uh, Make It With Code. And it was made by these, uh, these three people in the UK. They're their own startup. And uh, it was actually, the whole course was just make 10 apps with Ruby, like 10 web apps. And I did that. And they weren't actually all specifically web apps, but, um, and I did that and I was like, well, I'm just going to learn Ruby. And that's what started me on Ruby. And eventually now I've write Ruby professionally as well. So when did you move away from Java? 
Yeah. That was really, um, Java is good at being Java. Uh, it's, you know, I started with Java and the thing with Java is to get something up and running takes a lot of investment in time. Whereas Ruby, uh, particularly with Rails, Snapper, or any of frameworks, you can build something, you know, pretty quickly. And for me, I'm not like, a, I'm not, like, I don't, I like building things. I don't really care about what language I'm using or what tool I'm using. I use a brick and back against the computer if I thought I was going to get a result. Um, and so, you know, Ruby just allows me to achieve what I want to achieve quicker. Now, that's not to dismiss, like, other languages like Java. I know there's, like, dozens of people who work with Java professionally, and that's brilliant for them. Uh, but for my use case, Ruby was perfect because I was learning more about object oriented programming, and uh, I was building stuff, so I was building out a portfolio, uh, which is what I was going to use to eventually get a job. And uh, in in Dublin, when I looked at the market, you know, lot, there was a lot of Java, Java jobs. But Ruby was up there. It was always Ruby, Rails, we need Ruby, Rails, we need Ruby, Rails. And people, you know, when I, when I put kind of a, Put on LinkedIn that I was learning Ruby. I was getting, even though I wasn't that much, hadn't that much experience to reach my team. So I knew I was on the right track to learn Ruby and getting eventually getting the faster development job. So then you have one eye on functionality and one eye on the market. Yeah, so like um, I'm very like risk averse. So when I decided that I'm going to become a software developer, I the reason why I picked Java is because the market is lots of companies are looking for Java developers. And I lived in a place called Letter Kenny at the time, and the company, most of the companies there were looking for Java developers. And so it was always, so I think so it was obvious I have to learn Java, I want to get a job. But Java has, as I said, it has its um, growing pains. And then, you know, when, I, when that company reached out to me with Ruby, and I started learning Ruby, I was like, well, hang on, do I need to learn Java? If I can just do the same thing in Ruby much faster, you know. And uh, why, you know, so that was the reason is that there's that just productivity that Ruby gives me that Java didn't, you know. Now I'm sure if I went back and started writing Java, now I'm sure today if I started writing Java, I'd be much quicker at it because I just know more about programming. And so I don't think I'd be as quick as I am to write. A Ruby app, a Rails app, you know. Do you look at that period of learning Java as a waste of time, or do you actually learn stuff to help you learn Ruby? No, it's definitely not a waste of time. Like, you can't really, the thing is, you can't really get the time back, so you can't really consider any time wasted. And you only know in the present moment if you're wasting time. And, like, did it help you to learn Ruby? From having some sort of knowledge of Java, and if it did what, in what way? Did I would, I would say because I spent two two months learning Java, and um, when I and I was learning all the different object oriented principles, and uh, just trying to build a little app. Like the little things I was building at the start were not they were not spectacular by any means. Um, Can you they, give an example of a few apps that you created at the start. A 
at the start, it was literally just command line app. Um, I had a go at creating an Android app and no taking app. Um, and it, I thought it was working. But that's not a compliment to what I built. So uh, I um, so I built that. And then uh, it was around Christmas time of January that I discovered the Maple Code. And, uh, and then, like, after I did that course, I realized, like, living in the, t- the small town that I was, I had to go to Dublin because there's more offices. And so that's what I eventually did. So, I think it was 2014, that I moved to Dublin. And uh, I got a job, just a random job. And wasn't particularly important to me. And that's where I met you, of course. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, uh, doing that job, running, um, and when I had that job, well, as you saw, I was learning Pokemon when I was there. Sometimes when I was supposed to be doing the job, I was learning Pokemon. So, uh, yeah. Because at the time, you were actually doing a good job, but you were also just optimizing your time for the revision, too, I suppose. That's kind of the way I looked at it. Yeah, because the job was a call center, right? So mm-hmm. if you're not getting calls, you're, you know, what, you're not supposed to... You're supposed, there's nothing to do. That's the job. And so a lot of people would... You know, sit around, have a laugh, things like that. And I certainly would join in the odd time, but I used the time as decided so I could use this time to really uh, seek out more hours of practice. Because I was studying every night, uh, or every, not every, not every night, but three or four times a week. And uh, so studying, and um, so while I was there, it was great benefit because I was, the time we, the time we had, we were, you know, we were just able to learn our things. And some people there were using it to get ahead of their food. So it was great. You're so how do you, yeah, how do you, is that how you find time to do this stuff? Is it like those things where we go over look the time we have in our hands? Uh, I, I think people just, um, it depends. Like some people don't want to learn in their spare time. And they don't want to do all this stuff that we hear. A lot of people, like, Look, I can understand. No one wants to go home after a hard day's work and then sit and look at a computer when I'm broken because it's expensive every day looking at a computer for a job for the adult. And but the, I suppose it's deciding what to do with your time is the person. So it's making that conscious effort to decide. Um, and so how I found the time is I just don't really watch TV. Uh, that's one thing. So it's elimination. I don't watch TV. don't even have a TV. Um, was it, I, and so that's, uh, that's probably, so now that all of a sudden a lot of people spend time watching TV and spend a lot of time on Facebook, and I don't really do that. I'd rather just make stuff and learn stuff. And so, you know, even after work, after the gym, so you spend, even if you spend two hours in the gym, if you get home, that's there, you probably have an hour or you have half an hour. That's enough time to get something done. And, uh, it's it's not about putting in massive hours, loads of hours every day. It's about just now a tiny little result every day. The way I look at it is like, um, is I'd rather do 20 minutes every day than six hours in one day. So even if I did only did 20 minutes of something, that's better than doing nothing. And, or, you know, and then trying to have it all tied in. I like to spread out my work into little a little section and get it done that way. So think out little tiny results every day. 
Um, I do have a process that I can use for productivity in general. And can you use an example of a process or a system you have in place to make that easier to, to do consistently? What, what kind of system do I have to learn? Yeah, like how, how, how do you actually get yourself to do this every day? And does it get easier, like even just motivationally? Uh, I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> I honestly, I, I couldn't answer the motivation question. And I don't think it's motivation with me. I think it's just routine. And uh, as I say, it's, I suppose there's, when you, and you feel you have to learn a lot. And programming is a big field. Not only do you have to learn the language itself, but there's these concepts that you have to learn, and then there's databases and also you have to know different how browsers behave and you know how people behave and how you organize work. All these different concepts come into play, and uh, it's a complicated field. And the best way to get over that, for me, you know, is not to think about all that. Is to just get a small bit done every day and make it small. And so, so if it's only 20 minutes, do 20 minutes, and then say, all right, I'm happy I'm finished that. And you can go away guilt-free. The, I think the guilt of not doing something leads to procrastination. So if you put too much pressure on yourself, say, you know, you, you're like, I want to write a blog post of 2000 words. You know, if you put that pressure on yourself to have it done, like this evening, uh, you know, like after work. Well, since there, you just don't make it hard for yourself. You might start saying, well, it's a lot of work. But if you said to yourself, well, look, I'm only going to get 100 words done. If I get 100 words done, results. If I get more done, yeah, it's okay. That's better, you better still. So be happy with doing a small bit. And then um, you can get more done even better. But don't, the next day then, don't say, well, I got 500 words done and I said I was going to do 100. Maybe I'll do 600. No, let's say I'll do 100 again. And so that little little piece of relativity, so instead of doing a lot of work, I'm just doing tiny bits. I'm just tiny bits each out over a month. You know, all of a sudden we reached the 3,000 words hmm. um, in no time, you know. And right. usually I find as well, if I set myself a small goal, I end up doing more. Because I've achieved small goal and I just momentum carried it forward. Hmm. Makes sense. Um, what's your idea, what's your thoughts on perfectionism and uh, making mistakes then? Yeah, uh, it's important to make mistakes. Um, like you're not going to learn until you make mistakes. And the bigger the bigger the mess up, the faster you learn. Um, so. Because some mistakes, it's not always good to make mistakes, but some mistakes you can't come back from. You know, if you, let's say you do something that embarrasses somebody, uh, or you damage a relationship, especially when you get, oddly enough, when you get the, when you get older, uh, it's harder to make a mistake in that relationship because you don't see people a lot. You know, it's not like in school where you see people every day, it's easier to make up. And so, the mistakes, Perfectionism is never good. Sometimes you just have to get to the stage where you say, good enough. Um, I'm currently building a web application for, uh, for someone. And uh, you know, I've just got to the stage where you know, I can hand it off to the designer. But the design I've done, it's not, it's by no means any good. Um, but 
it's good enough that the designer doesn't have that much work to do and the client is happy with it. And uh, they're not frazzled, they're not, they're not looking at a page that's uh, got all these parallax effects or things like that. Um, but they can just see that I've done certain work, I've put in a scout, it's good enough, let's just move on, you know? So that's a sweet spot there, I suppose, when it's once their clients at the end, the designers are not going to be with, so. Yeah. Okay, bro. Yeah. And there is, like, a, but there is, um, when it comes to getting stuff done, though, there is, uh, there's actually a great um, YouTube video that I recommend. Uh, it's called Tiny Tiny Habits. And uh, I think it's a, it's a psychologist from Stanford, and I can't think of his name, off my head, but basically, he has this, um, there's this course called Tiny Habits. It's a free, it's a five minute video, and it's, uh, it's really, really good. So, let's say you want to learn how to block your teeth. A lot of people find like blocking your teeth really hard. Well, to build the habit of blocking your teeth, just start and aim to block one tooth a day for a month. And then, you know, you aim to block one, and then it's pretty easy. And then, all of a sudden, over 30 days, you know, blocking that one tooth, it's, it's such a small thing to do that you just end up blocking. But you, you only aim to block one, and you leave it at that. Small steps, so that's pretty much so it's, yeah. That's what I'm finding with those other things. It's like even something as small as flashing your teeth can build in that habit and turn mind to finger things gradually over time. Yeah, so it's like, it's just like, I think that it's, you know, when you go to start a project or start a new challenge or a new chapter, there's always, you always kind of make a mountain of it. But the trick is to kind of bring it down, you know, top it down, top it down, top it down. And instead of making it a giant mountain, how can you make it into the smallest thing that I can just step over and get started on my way? You know, it's like kind of the giant stairs. You know, you're not going to find it by over by thinking how you're going to approach every step or how you approach the You just start at the first step and you have to move the next step, move the next step. And the smaller, the smaller you make something at the beginning, the more likely you are to like, carry forward, I think. Hmm. Okay. So what, what have been the best investment in courses that you've done so far? I would say, yeah, definitely, um, yeah, even though, it's funny, even though I don't go to, uh, I didn't finish out college, I probably spent more money on learning and online courses than the average person who leaves college. Hmm. Uh, like, so the one, one, um, one course I did, online courses, really had like a, I did this back in 2014, 2013, and it's called Finish with Formula by a guy called Elise Stacey. And uh, that book is about positivity. And that's actually just about what we're talking about. Uh, so he broke that course into three courses. The first is uh, planning. You plan everything you want to do. You know, and, that's, and even to this day, I use the calendar. Like I put everything on the calendar. Because, and me, myself and my partner, we share a calendar. We know what each other are doing. And so we plan things way in advance. So like we know what's coming up and it's all in the calendar. And every day I can just set my calendar to do what I'm doing. I put when I'm going to the gym, uh, you know, where I'm working, everything's on it. And so when someone asks me, oh, you see that evening? Or whether I can just lift my calendar book down. And it's absolutely, it's lifted a massive burden on my mind. 
And the second thing is then is building a habit. So being able to build a habit. And there's a great book called The Power of Habit by Charles Sittig. And he talks about building a habit much the same way as he talks about with the small steps in the flossing. Uh, so that book, um, that book is really, really good. But the, the course itself goes into an interview with it and how he built a habit. And so let's just say you, as an example, let's just say you want to go to the gym. You never really want to go to the gym. A lot of people can say, well, I want to go to the gym. Look, a lot of people feel, they look at the successful people, successful gym goals, and they see that they're going five days a week or four days a week. And so they try to emulate them. But there's that phrase, don't be 40 before you're 40. And uh, so don't try and emulate those successful people because they've actually been through all those small little flex already. They, what, they, what they're able to do now is just routine for them. They don't even know what motivation is. They just know they go in, they go out, and they stay out. And um, so when you're, let's say, you're going to the gym, and, you're, and let's, say you, let's say you're a bit of a slob, and you never went to the gym, the best way to start is not to say, I need to go four days a week, or five days a week, or three days a week. The best thing to do is, for the next two months, I'm going to go to the gym every week for half an hour. And because that's such a small commitment to make, the chances are you're going to succeed. And then all of a sudden you're going to say, well, maybe I can go for two, half, two days a week, half an hour each. And then, you know, you do that for another three months. And then after that three-month period, you say, well, maybe I can go three days a week. And so you build this little routine up over time. And all of a sudden, you don't need to worry about motivation. The habit is already there. Now, sometimes you would fall out of the habit. But once you've learned how to build that habit, that bit by bit, it gets easier. And it's better to make the small little steps and then, rather than going, I'm going to get a person trainer, I'm going to go to the gym five days a week and mm-hmm. run and every morning and eat healthy. No, you're taking on too much. It's breaking down to small things. You know, don't change your diet. Don't change anything. Just start going to the gym for half an hour. Do that for two months, and then after two months, go for two days a week, you know, for half an hour, and don't worry about diet. You can change those things tiny bit at a time, and within three years, you'd be surprised what you'd achieve, you know? And then the last thing he talked about then was uh, long-term goals, setting really long-term goals, and, you know, over five years, so instead of setting like a, I'm going to achieve this in six months, it can be good, you're setting a long-term goal, it might be better, might be more realistic. Hmm. That was a good course. You could definitely myself. So, how do you find the balance with your diet and exercise and work? And um, how important is balance for you? Um, yeah, like I like I go to the gym four days a week, and uh, like I said, it's down to routine, and uh, it's depending on what I'm trying to achieve. At this current time, I'm trying to gain weight. Um, which might sound odd to some. That is, um, that's just a matter of eating more. And uh, was it uh, like I just basically what I do is like when I'm trying to lose weight, I I would ha- be having snacks. So let's say I'd have at the moment I have a snack, say around three o'clock, and then I have another one at like eleven. And so what I do is I I added those those in. When I'm trying to gain weight, when I'm trying to lose weight, I take I take one of them away for for a while, 
and then they take the other one. And the first two days, you're kind of hungry around that time, so your body recognizes when to eat. But after a week or so, it goes away. And uh, you know, I've done so much at this stage that that's what it is. And in terms of eating healthy when you have a job, I know some people find it difficult, but like, you know, I have um, I have help here. I have, like my partner, he eats healthy, and uh, that helps. Mm-hmm. You know, so what I do is like I would cook. Then Monday at work, I would cook like enough to bring for lunch tomorrow, and I have that. Mm-hmm. Were you always like that discipline with food, or was that kind of incrementally as well to get to that? Um, I was always interested in diet and nutrition. Um, and you know, diet and nutrition is a funny one because you learn, there's a lot to it, and there's a lot of, um, I suppose I can only call them charlatans out there, that can lead you astray. And, uh, and you, you know, sometimes you do get let down a new diet or whatever. Uh, so I, I don't know if it was, um, I think I was lucky because my parents fed me good food when I was younger. And now not now standing, they're like a typical Irish household. So they have meat, vegetables, and lots and lots of potatoes. So, uh, like as long as you're eating potatoes, you'll be fine. That's like the real Irish way, isn't it? Like if you're eating potatoes, you'll turn out okay. Um, you know, and, then, and now we're all walking around third class nation in Europe. Um, but, yeah, so like, um, I think that, like, because the parents had a routine of eating, like, cooked food. And so, I suppose, naturally, when you grow up, mm-hmm. you know, whether you like it or not, you're going to take on some of the parents' habits. Um, but eating healthy, like, uh, I don't, I eat pretty differently from my parents. So, um, you know, like, I don't eat, like, I don't eat cereal in the morning. And so things like that, you know, what is it, again, it's probably the incremental build-up. I've learned to, like, eat more protein in the morning instead of having porridge at I'd have eggs, and uh, they would have, a, like, a, a bagel with, bagel with, like, um, egg, scrambled egg or something like that, you know? Okay. So, I guess, if you three tips you could give to somebody who wanted to change career, they wanted to self-learn big and... Maybe what's happening is they think they need a certain degree or they need certain skill sets uh, before that. What would be three tips you would give to help them to get started and do, do it? Uh, I suppose set a long-term goal. Don't be in a rush to do this. And acknowledge that it's okay to do it slowly over time. Like to do it, as long as you're doing a small bit, on a regular basis, you will get there in the end. And buy lots of books. You know, I, I can't really give three tips. The only tip I can give is buy lots of books and read all those tips uh, because I'm by no means an expert. Um, you know, I just like, and there's also a bit of luck. And, we, you know, another thing as well I would tell people uh, is to, you know, my advice for always is for, uh, you know, I have lots of cousins who are going to college and things like that. And I always say, look, you got to learn how this, the market works. If you have a skill that not many people know how to do, but it's highly desirable, you will have a good career. If you learn something just because, you know, you want to learn it or you think it's trendy, but no one wants it really, then don't. Uh, there is a thing called the market. Even if you're doing what you love, um, you know, you can't really do what you love. 
if you're not making that much money, if you're struggling to make ends meet, there's no point. Uh, so learn that, learn how the market works, I think, definitely. So mm-hmm. before you go decide to change your career, make sure it's a viable career, basically. I'm just using a short list of uh, books that you recommend for anybody who wants to self-learn. Uh, well, not, I suppose some of these books wouldn't necessarily be about self-learning, but, um, you know, there's, there's uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I mentioned that book. It's not like going to change your life or anything like that, but it's good to read uh, these principles. Um, like, I, I'm not sure these uh, kind of books are... Uh, are any good or anything like that, but it's a really good it's a really good book to read and you get this general perspective and you talk about how to communicate with people things like that. Uh, there's a book called I Will Teach the Rich or in Stacy. Uh, personal finance book. I just think everyone should read at least at least one personal finance book. And then there's other books then like how to win friends with people, the book. Uh, you know, especially if you're, you want to do interviews or if you want to maybe freelance, so it's important to be able to communicate people. And in that same day, there's another book called Give and Take by Adam Grant. And it's, uh, it's a book about uh, reciprocation and how, you know, if you do something to someone, generally they feel like they owe you a favor. And so if you're a really given person, you can build up this bank of favors and you have sort of effectively you and people would always help you out, but they always return the favor. And then it also goes into the side of people who take advantage of givers. And so it's a really good book. And our insight leads to the book. It's a good book that, you know, that, you know that kind of principle of, uh, let's say, certification. Like when I, I have a client at the moment, and what I did for that client for any money of the screen, I wrote up a free report on how they could improve the website. And, uh, you know, they were able to take that report and they actually had to change what the executive started getting results. So before I even, I didn't even ask for money or anything like that. They knew, okay, this guy is actually trying to help us out, so maybe we should take him on. And that's a really good book. Uh, for our work week, it's a good book, but it's not really like a great, it's, it's a good book for changing your perspective. Yeah. So it's kind of challenges your perspective on uh, it. What it is to be, um, you know, to retire. Sounds like mm-hmm. all these kind of set ideas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then um, there are fitness books I like, like Dark and Strength, a great book mm-hmm. uh, by Mark Ripsel. Uh Then there's um, a few computer software books that I would recommend to anybody to read. And one of them is Don't Make Me Think with Steve Krug. So this book is about design. And how small little things they small little things can actually be bad design. So a good example of bad design is you ever get to those doors and it says uh, there's a door handle on it, but it says push. And what does everybody do? They pull it because it's the handle. And when people see a handle, intuitively they pull and then they push. But that's actually just bad design. So if you actually just had a flat if you didn't have a handle there, people wouldn't push. So this is like, that's just an example of bad design. That, that, that book, Don't Make You Think, goes into that. But this is about the web that goes into that. And then another book is 
probably about a lot of things. It's called The Paradox of Choice. Very good book to learn the limitations of choice. It's an interesting book because, you know, we have this, we have this assumption that uh, to be free is to have unlimited choice. But the more choice you give someone, the chances of them making that choice decrease with the more choice you give them. Mm-hmm. And then another book is Charisma Myth by another Pakistan. That's a really good book about interacting with people. And, and then there's other books then I like. Uh, this, this sounds like a boring book, but it's an amazing book. It's called The Techlist Manifesto. It's a book about techlists. And you never think techlists would be exciting. Well, they're not. This is a good book about tech. Techlist Manifesto, uh, Techlist Manifesto. So it's written by a doctor called Aku Gawan. And, uh, yeah, the, um, it's just about how putting in simple things can have a huge effect on hospitals, particularly in hospital hospitals. So just by, um, I'd say with a surgeon, so certain tasks can spread a lot of disease. And so what the usually surgeons were in a position where they wouldn't, they, would, they just ignore the nurse, the nurse is going to the system. So what he did is he put the nurse in a position of power where the surgeon has to make sure that the, that the nurse will go or that the, the nurse would read out a checklist and the surgeon has to make sure that you know, everything goes on the checklist. Mm. This dramatically uh, decreased infection in one hospital and, and situations like that. Mm-hmm. And really good book. And then uh, The Secret Millionaire Next Door. It sounds like a scanning title. It's not. It's a book about frugality and how, how these households that shouldn't really be rich are rich. And how high spending, even though they have huge income, like say Conor McGregor has gotten 100, 100 million, well, they quickly become bankrupt in 10, 20 years. Uh, not that that's going to happen to Conor McGregor, but, um, so, but these secret millionaires, they're kind of they're more humble. They just kind of gather wealth. They don't really like spending money. And amazingly, end up retiring with millions. And it's a really interesting book. And... Uh, See, another book then is like, uh, I don't want to go on and on. Yeah, but I think, go on to the book. Yeah, you could, yeah. yeah. That's a pretty comprehensive list. That's pretty, um, around oh, you recommend? I recommend, uh... In the last year, like, what book have you read that you thought? Pretty good. I guess actually it's a little book of clarity, but you know, it's not... <clears throat> For me, that was the first book where it was just like simple. It was like understanding of the mind. It was just like it resonated, and I was like, this clears a lot of things up. To do with yeah. overanalyzing stuff. I yeah. kind of found that balance better between my tendency to overanalyze something and just kind of going, okay, whatever. Is it, is it like uh, about mindfulness? It's about state of mind. So it's like it's when you're looking at something and you realize that you're the one creating the problems around it. So you're actually looking at it more simply and you can see the solution a lot clearer from that kind of clarity. That's the best way I can describe it, I guess. Yeah. Well, that's good. And that would it be like a scientific kind of book or is it more like a... No, it's more, I guess it's more innate wisdom. It's like you're more kind of just reflective and you're more allowing the space to emerge for something to look at something differently. So 
what I find is that when I'm trying to solve a problem and I can get very tunnel vision on it and get the same thing over and over and over, but until I get that bit of awareness where I'm like, okay, I just need to see something different here or talk to somebody different with a different perspective, I'll keep getting the same results pretty much. Yeah. So that's uh, how I would describe it, I guess. Yeah, I, I don't know about um, well, at the moment, I'm reading The Art of Learning, which is really good. It's a guy, um, again, but he was like a guy that was, was going to be the next Bobby Fischer. He was like a world champion in chess, and he decided to do Tai Chi instead, and he started seeing the other like, principles between oh, the two fields. I've heard, heard of this book, The Art of Learning. Is it good? Yeah, I'm reading it at the moment. Yeah, no, I like it because um, we start seeing how two different, on the surface, two different fields how they can complement each other. So when I'm looking at it, I'm like, chess is pretty highly analytical. So the type cheese more about focusing on the breath and using your energy and your body and stuff. And we start to see how they, how your advantages from chess can be applied to Tai Chi and then Tai Chi can give you better stuff that chess can give you necessarily. Yeah. So. I exactly found that like skills are transferable. Like even with like Pokemon, you know, which we're talking about, like I find that is a the, the routine, the routine that I got from like fitness, like um, you know, playing sports every day, you know, going to training on like three, four days a week, that crossed over into learning programming because I was able to apply that principle of studying regularly to eventually get stronger at the skills, you know. That's it. Yeah. Another book actually, the talent code, how greatness is grown, not born. So that just kind of looks at the brain and. How the myelination of the synapses that are firing, how it strengthens over time, and that's how things become easier and more effortless, just from a scientific point of view. But Joe, you know, I'm actually going to use this opportunity then to talk about you. Um, you know, when it comes to your languages, do you speak, how many languages do you speak? I speak four. Like French would be my strongest, and Spanish and Italian I learned from after learning French. Yeah. And so, when did you learn those languages? Like, can you give us like a, a chronicle of when you learned those languages? When I learned them? So I learned French in university and then I went to France as an English so teaching assistant for a year. High school, or high school, like, did you do French? Yeah, I did it in secondary school and I did it in university. It was only when I started going to the country. It was really when I started seeing if I could speak to French people, that I that the desire started coming from within me to actually learn it. And it was then that I started like making it a game for myself to just improve and be able to communicate. And I started seeing the psychological elements of like not taking myself so seriously and learning from mistakes and that kind of thing. And then um, I learned Spanish and Italian after French. Then I started seeing I read some stuff on word use of frequency and I came across a book from Benny Lewis and I just started reading about Plato's Law and these little hacks that I didn't know about even when I was learning French right, right the way through. And yeah, it started with just opening my mind to possibilities that it's possible to learn Spanish and Italian within a few months rather than another three, four years to learn it right now. And do you think, so do you think uh, you had the pattern of a language already there? Because so I don't, I speak a little bit of French. Not like I, I couldn't come to school soon. And so, so you had the pattern of like learning to speak a different language. Do you think that made it easier to learn Italian or uh, Spanish? 
Yeah, definitely, because they're within the same fa- or language family. So once I learned French, I didn't have to waste time wrapping my head around the idea of what does the word structure look like in Spanish and Italian. Because you could really go down the detail and get bogged into the differences between Spanish and Italian and French. So I just looked at the stuff, I looked at like the big picture similarities instead of learning the basics. And so at the start, like I was just comfortable being, I was comfortable with the unknown after a while. So like watching videos, I didn't understand anything in Spanish and Italian, even though I was really good at French at that stage. But I just persevered and I learned the stuff I needed to learn to start talking. And that just kind of just increased my confidence, increased the momentum. and. I got to like a conversation with that broke after like three months. But that was with a lot of hours every day was probably spending. And so when you in when you were learning these languages, you were in so so when you were learning French, you went to Toulouse, didn't you? And uh, we got to speak French basically. Oh yeah, it was like a small town outside BRX and and nobody spoke English there, so it was a great time for me to actually just speak French every day for a year. And how long was it there for an academic year? And uh, that's when I learned Spanish oh, cool. and Italian. So I didn't actually go, I never actually lived in Spain or Italy, but I kind of debunked me that I needed to go there. I was there, I could get better at it if I went there, but you don't have to actually go there to learn it. So yeah, that was my next question. Like, um, you know, when you were learning like Spanish or Italian, like, how did you practice speaking Spanish or Italian or Portuguese if you had never been there? Because I assumed you'd learn these in Dublin. Well, so you learned these in France, and uh, so how did you, yeah, so how did you, like, uh, go about, practice? could you, would you be comfortable speaking to the Italian person? So, yeah, now it's kind of, <clears throat> yeah, I'd be comfortable in having a conversation, like, I'd easily get by with them now. It's, it's practice, like, if I was speaking Italian for three weeks, I'd be, like, really comfortable with it. If I speak to somebody now, it's kind of like, we'll struggle through a conversation, but we'll have a dialogue, we'll have a conversation going in, it's not, that much I wouldn't understand. I can understand more than I can speak due to the fact that I don't practice it that much. I don't. And, uh, yeah, but um, I have that confidence. I have that, like, I have that understanding that language is pretty much a means to communicate with somebody. It's not a reflection on, like, my intelligence and all this kind of stuff. It's like when you can get that out of your head, it's like, this is practically a means to communicate with somebody that I wouldn't be able to communicate with otherwise. And we'll go from there start learning the words, start making mistakes, that kind of thing. And, uh, yeah. That's how I kind of got with it. But I started realizing that you can, there's four different levels of it. So you can go like, I want to just read and write, or I want to like interact and listen. But for listening, I just did it subliminally. So I watched like interviews on YouTube. So at the start, I didn't understand nothing. But I started learning words. So I knew we were going to be in that interview based on the fact that Pretty frequently within that domain, like sport or something like that. And yeah. after a few weeks, I started like picking out the words here and there, and that really was great for my confidence. Because after two weeks, I was like watching the advanced level stuff, like natural language stuff, and understanding words here and there, which I wouldn't have been doing if I didn't have that mentality. So I wouldn't be able to school that people are beginner to be advanced because it just seems so damn long to get to speaking it. They're always putting it off. Or just going yeah. there and day one. That's how I kind of run from Benny Lewis's book. Just going there from day one, learn the practical stuff, make mistakes, have fun. And because uh, yeah, fluency is arbitrary, there's no such thing as like perfect fluency in any language. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like, because you know, even people who are like, you know, even people who are born speaking a language, they don't know all the words in the language, right? Mm-hmm. Um, 
I suppose so. One way I define fluency, or two ways. One, you tell a joke in French. You can even tell like a joke in French. Now, obviously, I wouldn't get it. <laughs> but, a joke in French? Like, like a joke in French would be able to deliver because if I told a joke in English, you know, you, you could say it in many different ways. You have like different like, dead and joke type words. So, I, I don't know if the French do dead pants. Do the French do dead pants? I know they do, but, but, but like, uh, do they like, um, so like, what would be a French kind of joke? I think the humor is a little bit different. And it's just a good topic because when I think about it now, it's like I don't always get jokes in English. Um, like I'll get some jokes in French, I won't get other jokes. That, that's just because my jokes are really bad. Well, <laughs> no, it's a good thing to highlight because you might, like, as a learner, you might have this perception that if I don't get the jokes in French, that means that my level isn't good enough. But actually, when I think about it in English, it was always turned around in my native language and I go, Do I always understand jokes in English? I don't. So why would I expect to always understand jokes in French? And especially when it's like you've got a culture, a different way of thinking. So sometimes it would be hilarious to somebody from another country and it's like, that's not really funny. You might think I was yeah. maybe missing something here, but maybe you're not. Um, what about something as well? Another kind of um, way I describe fluency, like sometimes I would be, I, I don't know how it happens, but like my mother is really good at this. She's really, she's really, not really good at really good, really articulate. And uh, so when she talks in the conversation, she's always able to bring in a new word that makes sense to everybody there. You know, and I maybe I wouldn't have heard it in a while. So she just brings in a word, so like a synonym for something maybe, or something that, or makes the story a bit better. Would you be able to do that? So I don't know if I can, like, uh, with me? So like, let's just say, um, so like, instead of using like a word, like, say story, say like, say, oh, he, was, he had this narrative, instead okay. of saying, oh, he had this story, so my mother would use it to say something like, say, oh, when he was narrating this, he said, oh, he was telling me that. Yeah. So she, she, she can have a synonym for telling, and uh, where most people They'd be saying, well, he said this to me, or my mother would say, well, he was narrating this. And, uh, and said, you have a joke. And so would there. you be able to, like, when you're speaking French, yeah. you to reach for a synonym instead of, uh, or, or if a French person did use a synonym, would you understand? Yeah, I, mean, I would. Like, I can't think of one off the top of my head, but what I did think of when you said that is that how, that's how I approach Spanish and Italian. I got rid of all the necessary synonyms. So I learned that one word instead of the ten, right? Because there's a tendency to try and learn everything at once. So if you go like that one word, it'll always do you. At least you're communicating, you know? Um, and I think that's the difference between my level of French and Spanish and Italian. Like French, I'll have more words, I'll have more synonyms and more ways of saying to it because just from the fact that I've lived there, I've been longer learning the languages. Um, yeah, so I think that's the struggle with Spanish and Italian for me. I wouldn't have as many synonyms and different ways of saying things, expressing things. But, I do find in Spanish or Italian, I can understand more than I can actually say just due to the fact I don't practice enough. Um, yeah. But, uh, 
And what about getting jokes? So we talked about telling jokes. What about getting a joke? So if a French person told a joke, would you get it? Like, did they said a very slight joke in French? Well, it's hard to tell, like, uh... Or has it happened to you and you have thought, or... Oh, like, there's definitely situations where there would have been a joke, I wouldn't understand situations yeah. where I wouldn't have understood it, but then, not the top of my head, it's, it's uh... Like, you know, like, the thing is, it's a different type of humor. What I did notice when I was in France, they did think that there was a perception that, well, it's probably real, that in English-speaking countries, it was more dark humor, so taboo stuff like death and stuff, we seem to joke a lot more than in France, and it's a different kind of way. I remember when I was watching the shows and stuff, I often like just wouldn't get the jokes. I, I understand them, but I wouldn't get why it's funny. Um, yeah. And of course, there's the whole French culture, the French context. That yeah, that's it. Yeah. So, like, my understanding wouldn't be as deep as somebody who's, who's French, you know, around when it comes to culture, because that's the thing about language is a lot of it's influenced by culture and thinking and that kind of stuff. And when you're not naturally from that country, there is going to be elements that go over your head. Just being okay with that and realizing that. Because a lot of a block I had when I was learning languages is that I thought there was like this ideal fluency that I would get to one day. But then when I started questioning my own English, I was like, okay, there is no where to get to here. It's just a like function of what we need to learn here. And so, like, um, have you ever like mixed up a word? So, this is a, like, I remember my, my I had a French teacher and he told me one day he was there. Uh, he was in France and he's working in the factory yeah. and he was describing what they did in the factory for all the French people around him. He was describing it in, in French, obviously. And, uh, and then he says, he said something like, uh, to the effect, he used the word preservative and that they put it in the food. And preservative, which they did not know, is the word, French word for condom. Mm. So he just told like, this, this, all these French people, and he's putting condoms in the food. And that has and that that makes them tastier. And so yeah, that ever like that happens to you. There's room for that. No, that I I don't think I'd use that word, but that was a confusion for me to start because preservative is like you think it's a preservative, but it's kind of and at the top of my head, I don't think anything I don't think anything like that happened. What would happen though, I was like because when I speak French I've got an English speaker accent is very clear that I'm not from France and the other time I'll get ready to argue. It wouldn't even be ridiculous. A lot of people like it. They just kind of tease you for it and stuff. And I quite like that. I can take it two ways. I can get insulted by that. Or I can just embrace that. And I just kind of chose to embrace that. Um, yeah. That's the only thing that comes to mind like, to me. You never got the situation where you brought a lady, a lady friend home and uh, she said, you have a preservative. You're like, what? Preserve them? No. No. <laughs> No, that's never I, happened, you know. I've seen that distinction before that. So that'd be that'd be very awkward if you were like yeah. preserving. Why do we need to preserve if we're about to have sex? What are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> no, like there's plenty of room for those other stuff and what is just like what I'm saying there is just you can take it two ways and then it's like Yeah, absolutely you no. Know. That's the two choices there. So um anyway, great talking to you William. How can people actually yeah. get in contact with you? And if you want to talk. Um, but if you go to newtocode.com, yeah. you can read like my blog post. If you sign up for my email newsletter, I have a free course that like um, that'll tell you how like basically to go about getting a career. And that's it. It's about I think 14, 14 or fifteen day 
you know, of course. And um, it's uh, like, that's it, there's no sales. I don't make any money from it. It's super free. Um, and uh, sometimes I would send an email um, to everybody with something new came out. And that's best place to reach me. Or you can follow me on Twitter at new to come. And new to uh, number two, of course. And that's it. Perfect. Well, thanks for taking the time to join us today, William, and uh, for all your insights and tips. And uh, so until next time, have fun and enjoy the process. <laughs>